Welcome to the Roundtable Consult. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Williams, and I'm joined as always by my wonderful co-host, attorney Sonia Madison. Sonia, how you doing? Don't tell I me am you. doing so well today. I'm so excited about our show today. And just to show you how generous I am, I'm going to let you introduce it. Oh, you've been generous today. How about that? <laughs> it's the mark <laughs> of my personality. <laughs> <laughs> the lack of it. The mark of a lack. <laughs> But anyway, I'm excited because as you all know, we had our family reunion just two weeks ago. And while we were down there in Uniontown, Alabama, we got an incredible history lesson on Marion and Selma and the civil rights movement. We were able to get a lot of information from our family members, our aunts and uncles who lived there and experienced it. There were so many things that were brought to light about uh, the area and and how things were, and even more so how they still have not changed very much from today. And so we prepared a special, unique uh, documentary form for you today. So we won't have our back and forth current topics as we normally do. And you'll barely get to hear Sonia talk much today. So be very happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, I'm sure that will be missed, but I hope you guys enjoy this as much as we have enjoyed putting it together for you. So please enjoy our history. We're here at Lincoln um, Memorial Museum and Lincoln High School actually it started out, I guess, as a high school, but eventually became like a normal school, what they call it. Uh, but two years after the uh, end of this of slavery, less than two years after the end of slavery and the end of the Civil War, you see that there are so many slaves who actually were uneducated because it was obviously illegal for slaves to learn how to read or write. And so one day you're a slave, the next day you're free. What do you do? How do you make how do you make money? How do you provide for your family? So, as history tells us, so many of them. I became indentured servants and, 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 and worked on the lands of the plantations uh, of former slave owners. Uh, but there were, there were a group of nine ex-slaves that determined that um, it was expedient that the Negro become educated and learn how to uh, educate themselves as well. But obviously there was not an abundant source of educators around that time. So those nine ex-slaves, they call them the Marion Nine, decided that they would organize and they became the first board of trustees of the Lincoln Normal School. Obviously, in order to purchase and build the school that's primarily focused on educating African-Americans or Negroes, um, in order to do that, you have to have money, you have to have land. So they, they collected $500 to be able to purchase the land and, and the American Missionary Association, the AMA, uh, really befriended them and not only helped them to raise the money to build the school uh, and to purchase the land, and a lot of the uh, former slaves actually built the schools, but not only did they provide the money for it, but they sent 
uh, teachers and educators, administrators from um, out, out, out east and some of the northern states to come down here at great risk to themselves because this was a very hostile territory for for uh, blacks and was <laughs> as, as hostile for whites who wanted to help blacks. One of the fascinating things about this place where you are right now is one of the oldest HBCUs in the South. It was founded in 1867, the same year as Howard University. And it started as an HBCU. It started to, it started to educate formerly enslaved people, especially from this region. Now, one thing about my story is my name, my full name is Marcus Childs Moore. One, this school was started by nine individuals, one of which was James Childs, who was born a slave, lived the majority of his life as a slave, was also a minister, and was taught to read during when, when he was enslaved, and but started a church, and out of that church came this school. That church is still standing today, it's actually right around the corner. Um, it's still an active congregation of the first congregational church of Mary in Alabama. And it is the oldest unaltered African-American church in the state of Alabama. Oldest unaltered, which means that the brick, the stones, the slabs, and the timber that those slaves built on that site in 1869 are still attached to that building. So one of the things that's, that's very interesting about the state of Alabama, and this is not unique to, to states in the South, in 1820, there were 40,000 enslaved people in the state of Alabama. By the start of the Civil War, there was over 430,000 enslaved people. In the course of four years, it was almost, it was over 10 times the population of enslaved people that it grew that much through domestic slave trade because of what was mentioned earlier, the agrarian, um, the economics, cotton, all the agriculture, they needed free labor. They wanted free labor. They prospered out of free labor. Now, the story that you told that we heard earlier about the impact of land on your family and the impact of generational wealth, yes, it comes in the format of economics, but it also comes in the format of education. And that's what this school was founded to do was helped to start the educational wealth, which we know also encourages generational economic growth. The two are frequently tied. So this is what this space is about. This is what this school is about. You'll probably go over to one of the original buildings over at Lincoln Audit um, the Auditorium a little bit later on. But one reason why this place ceased to be a college was in the 1880s there was a fire. When instead of rebuilding a lot of those buildings, they moved the teacher's college that was here to become Alabama State University, which many of you might know. Alabama State University started off here at this place. One of the things you'll probably learn a little bit more about is at this site right here, there's more black folks with advanced PhDs that either went to Lincoln Normal School or there were the children of people that went to normal school than any other schools in the country. And it's been studied by Yale, it's been studied by Harvard, it's been studied by a lot of universities as a unique and actually a successful experiment in educating newly free and formerly enslaved people. Education was important then. Education is equally just as important today. Those million nine got with the American Missionary Association and the Freedmen's Bureau. 
Now, the American Missionary Association was going all over the South, assisting the newly freed slaves on how to read, write, and help them with their basic things, and also trying to give them a, a lift up. So they agreed that they would help provide the funding for the school, and they did. So that's how Lincoln Normal came to be. A lot of the labor was done by the, by the blacks. And one thing about the blacks is that the, the African-American at that time on the Negro, and I know we use all of that interchangeably, but at that time, they knew how to build. They knew how to build anything. Look at those buildings. Those buildings, are, those few buildings that you saw, they were built on this campus. There were about 18, at one point, 18 buildings on this campus. 600 students attended this campus. It was a boarding school. Students came from all over the country. They boarded, they lived on campus because they couldn't afford to walk back and forth. The AMA provided the teachers. And understand that in 1865, it was against the law to teach an African-American to read. So not only could you not read, but it was against the law to teach you to read. So those married and I formed a pack and a partnership with the AMA and the Freedmen Bureau. Those teachers were shipped from the New England states, Maine, Massachusetts, low states, uh, Indiana. They were, they were, they were um, by railroad. And they came to Marion, Alabama as instructors, principals. They came here to Marion, Alabama to teach. They lived on campus. There was a boarding, uh, a teacher's dorm, a living quarters. They called it Forest Home. It was the home of Bedford Forest. And for those of you that don't know who Bedford Forest is, he was the Grand Wizard of the KKK. And of course, he, was, he had left that spot and was moving on, so they bought that property. Lincoln Normal bought the property, and that was the, the faculty's home. They lived there. Understand also that at that time, it was very volatile. So those teachers were often run away, assaulted, but they persevered. The AMA said, we are going to do this. They said that the principals came from there. Now, remember I said that it was against the law for an African, the whites to teach an African-American to read or write. Well, all of the teachers at that time were white. Because why? There were no qualified blacks to teach. So they were, those Mary and nine were playing catch up. They were, they were on the ground running because they had to do, a, do something quick. So therefore, they created a normal school. So it became Lincoln Normal. A college campus in the 1860s was unheard of for African American. But they taught teachers to teach. They taught the students to teach. So when you graduated from Lincoln Normal, you were given a classroom. Because that's just how desperate the situation was. 16 years old, you could graduate from Lincoln Normal. And at 16, you were given the keys to a classroom. There was algebra, trig uh, trigonometry, calculus, statistics, seven different foreign languages, music. They had a choral group. They had a choir that traveled all over the country. Coretta Scott King attended school right here at this campus. Her singing career, her music career, she was a mezzo-soprano and accomplished pianist. Started right here. Jean Charles Young, all of these names of these people, they had a basketball team, a football team, a baseball team. 
They raise their food. They lose a 40-acre campus. 40 acres. They had homogonomics, an English department, economic building, a math building. So they raised, and, and, and they had a, a tailoring. So when you left Lincoln Normal, you could open your own business designing your clothes because they made a lot of the clothes for the students. But where there is a wheel, there is a way. way. So you shouldn't get disheartened sometimes when things happen. Because just know that there were people that came along before you that worked with stuff that we have no clue how they did it. My grandfather was working for 25 cents a day with a family. My grandmother graduated Lincoln Normal at 16 years old. She was given to school. Right here in, right in Uniontown, Alabama. $40 a month. And having to travel. $40 a month. Two children, husband, having to take care of household. So you see what they did with what they had, we can do as well. I want to do a quick tie um, because one of the alums of Lincoln Memorial was Robert C. Hatch. Yes. And then our parents went on to attend the Robert C. Hatch High School. So history. Um, I'm going to focus a little bit on the importance of not only economics, but also property, estate, and land ownership. I would say one of the grateful things that we have in, in our family is that our grandparents owned their land. Um, so as you can imagine, considering that after 1865, people are kind of figuring out, particularly black people, free black people, how are we going to live? How are we going to support our family? What's not? Um, eventually, our grandparents were fortunate enough to own the land here in Marion County, here in Alabama, um, and, and through that, was able to use the economics from that and selling cotton and selling, um, I want to say it was corn dairy. and, and da dairy, um, to educate our parents who were able to, some of them able to go on to college, and then here we are, um, yes. going on to even more advanced degrees. And so you can imagine, again, when you're coming out as a slave and you don't know how to read or write, you don't know the importance of um, the documents, the importance of um, estate ownership, the importance of property, and those are things you aspire to, to be able to exercise some of the benefits that come with being free. The, to be able to have that ownership and then pass it down and to, and to grow into in, in generational wealth and also to educate um, your kids so they can continue not only growing what you've started but also using laws and using um, various property things that documents or whatever to continue upon that um, and, and to be able to pass that on for generations and so it's such a pride you know even as I'm talking about it I'm, I'm very impressed it talks about the resilience of our people uh, to be able to go through adversity and still be able to you know again provide for your family so that it builds more so another interesting aspect of, that we've talked about here in Marion County is the March on Selma and I'm sure you guys have heard about the March on Selma but if you haven't well, let me encourage you to do some history lessons, but two, I mean, that was the March on Pettus Bridge in which it really helped spark not only a national attention on what was going on here in the South, but also enabled more civil rights um, legislation to happen because again, more people were on notice. But, and some of you may know this, but in case you don't know, it really, some of that started right here in Marion, Alabama. Um, one of the um, teachers here, James Orange, was helping some of the students understand and know, okay, this is how to protest, this is how to combat um, civil laws or laws that were against or to the detriment of blacks here. 
And for the most part, a lot of the students, even though they see some of their parents doing okay, or at least see them their parents supporting, they said enough of the oppression, enough of so much um, obstacles in a way for us to continue to advance. And so in that, as he, James Orange, was teaching some of the students, okay, this is how you protest, this is how you're able to raise awareness. As you can imagine, a lot of the white owners um, became upset, and particularly even in law enforcement. So through that, they sought out ways to lock up Mr. Orange. When they actually were protesting, the students were supposed to be in school, and there was a law against uh, truancy, I guess. And so they actually went and arrested these students, these young students, some of them as young as 12, and put them into prison. So these students were incarcerated for four days and the only way that they could get out, of course, I think they placed like a $100 bail on the bond for these students to be able to get out. Obviously, these were poor black families who didn't have $100, weren't making $20 in a month, some of them. But the only way that they could get these children bailed out were that the landowners actually would come out, come to the rescue of those, which was important because there weren't very many black landowners here, but the, the importance of community, the importance of seeing a cause greater than themselves helped motivate them to put their land, I guess, on the line in order to be able to get these people out. They didn't tell the parents that they were there. They did not notify the parents. The parents heard because of the adults that followed the bus. Now, they wouldn't allow the parents to make bond. They wanted them to do a $100 cash bond. Now, where are you going to get that from? Well, you don't make $100 a month, obviously. No, not even that. So, the majority of them stayed until they were landowners. They filed an injunction. The courts ruled that it was, that was a violation of their constitutional rights. They got the landowners, some landowners, like the wars and all the examples. Like the house and all land examples, like the pages and all land examples. They went up, the Turners, they went to those camps and signed for those children to get out. And my understanding is, is that when you this is these are the things that your families were involved in. Because you heard us say page, because they were landowners. These are the things that want you that you were your family that you can be proud of. Although all of our family members didn't march in the march per se, but they played an important role. So here you had, they went to Kim after four days, maximum of four days, they were all out by the fourth day. Some of those kids were sick, some never got over the, the inhumane treatments, infections, and all of these things that they had to deal with. Well, the situation continued on. Now, on February 
and was arrested and beat. So this is nothing new. So they knew that something would and could happen. The same dogs that they had, they had hound dogs. Perry kept Marion had bloodhounds. Those bloodhounds were housed on Highway 14 at the end of the, the property where my parents live now. Late at night sometimes you can hear those dogs howling and my dad said they're after somebody. Those hound dogs, that's how our ancestors were treated, but doing nothing. So here, James Orange was arrested. They decided they were gonna march on February 18th to protect James Orange. They were gonna sit in the jail all night to make sure they didn't ease him out the bag and take him to kill him. Because you know, a couple of days before that, they'd already threatened. If Martin Luther King Jr. comes to Marion, Alabama, we're going to kill him. And they didn't say that to the media. So it's not so uncommon that a person be brutalized and beaten and even sometimes lose their lives. That night, the march started, they walked, this, they came out of, out of Zion United Methodist Church. When they came out of Zion Church, they kneeled down to pray as they usually do before they do any march. As they kneeled down to pray, Reverend Dolines led the prayer. T.O. Harris said, Stop the prayer to go back to the church. There ain't gonna be no marching here tonight. Well, I'll have you to know that the Kluka clan was on the opposite side of, of, this, of the church. They were about 100 deep over there. The city chief of police and the sheriff had already deputized any white person that wanted to be a law enforcement officer that night. So there were 50 to 75 just local people you know, the merchants out there that were deputized and had badges and had given, been given the right to arrest. State troopers had been sent to Marion, Alabama in droves. There were dozens and dozens of them all down in the old National Guard line and all the way up to, to the jail. News reporters from New York City all over here, everywhere. So when they told him to stop the march and he didn't and get up, that's when the, he got hit over the head with a billy club knocked out and had to have six, eight stitches and had a concussion. That's when all the melee started, when they started the beatings and the, and the shoving and the kicking and, and the news media's cameras were taken from them thousands of dollars worth of equipment and they destroyed them in the streets. They took spray paint and, and sprayed the lids so that they could get no, uh, there's no witness, not even pictures of what happened that night because their intention was to destroy them. That's just what the intention was. And sometimes, you know, um, people are afraid of change. Change. But the situation in Alabama and in Marion and Perry County particularly was about power. It was about power. The right to vote is a very powerful thing. It's a very powerful thing. And it should never be taken for granted. Even our young folks right now should be anxious and waiting and can't run away to vote. Teach them right now that voting process. Talk to them about that so they'll understand it. But that was what the problem was. It was about power. If you give the black man the right to vote, then he can change the situation. He can change the rules. Why? Because they change the rules. The vote. That is the only time you go into that booth to vote. The only time that I know that I am equal to the President of the United States, 
one goal for one day. I am just as important. My goal is just as important as anyone else's. And that's what they were trying to do. Get the right to vote. That fateful night, the 26-year-old civil rights activist and deacon, Jimmy Lee Jackson, attended a peaceful demonstration protesting the incarceration of James Orange and in pursuit of the right to vote. With him, Mr. Jackson brought his sister, mother, and maternal grandfather. Shortly after the demonstrations began, violence initiated by the police and state troopers ensued. Jimmy Lee Jackson and his family retreated into a cafe located behind the church. They were pursued by law enforcement, and one of the officers proceeded to beat his grandfather to the ground with a billy club. Jim Jimmy Lee's mother attempted to pull the officer off of her father and was herself beaten. When Jimmy Lee attempted to help his mother, he was thrown against a cigarette machine and was shot in the abdomen by a state trooper. He was subsequently taken to the Good Samaritan Hospital, where he gave his account of the events to an FBI agent before being taken into surgery by a black surgeon, Dr. William Dinkins. Several days later, he was taken back to the operating room by a white surgeon and subsequently died. Dr. Dinkins expressed his strong suspicion that the death of Jimmy Lee Jackson was intentionally caused by an overdose of anesthesia. It wasn't until 2005 when former Alabama state trooper James Fowler admitted that he shot Jackson. In 2010, he pleaded guilty to manslaughter and was sentenced to six months in prison. But the death of Jimmy Lee Jackson sparked several organized marches from Marion and Selma to Montgomery, Alabama, the first of which occurred only days after his death on March 7, 1965. Because of the violence that took place on that day, it became known as Bloody Sunday. We are here at the infamous Edmund Pettus Bridge. As we talked about earlier, our, we have family that not only marched the bridge, but they're here in Marion and in where it all started. And so we're going to be talking to some of our family members about their experience, not only seeing some of the footage of the bridge, but also what it means to them. And to live it. And to, right. to be in the midst of it and some of the risks that they were taking, not only for their own lives, but also those risks of their families. We'll even talk to some of our other relatives and some of our uh, aunts and uncles who have a history of integrating schools. So right now, we're going to bring you to our Uncle Jensi, who uh, will talk to us a little bit more about his experience with the march here on Bloody Sunday. Oh, Uncle Jensi, yes, you're the family. So yeah. I have a couple questions. First of all, so even here in, in Alabama, you mm -hmm. guys didn't have to deal with the white people. We dealt with them, but when we was kids, that's what we're talking about, when we was kids. But when we got grown, we recognized all of what's going on. They don't, you can't go into the, they had white and black and color. Right, Bad. so even as kids, you saw the white, black, and color, but you mm -hmm. didn't, it, it didn't resonate with what that meant. Like it didn't make you feel, Inferior. Huh? It didn't make you feel inferior. Like when you oh, you yeah. grew up seeing oh, yeah. white, you, you black always felt that. signs. Okay. We, we always felt inferior because mainly what's happening to us. We were raised that way. We program programming ourselves that way. Okay. Or they program, program yourself to feel inferior. I guess that's what yeah. you can call it if you want. But really, 
Now let me show you something. You Which pull, I understand. When you yeah, see a sign okay. that says white blacks and others, I uh -huh. imagine you recognize there's a separation, but I didn't know because I said it, it seemed like you said as a kid you didn't. No, I didn't. Okay. See, even then I ain't taken serious because, you know, because I know at one time I looked at the street walking, talking with the little white girl. And when I got home, I couldn't believe. I didn't know what they had to talk about. Why don't you never do that no more? Do what? What did I do? He said, you up there on the street talking with white girl, and they hang you for that. I don't want them to happen to you. I ain't do nothing good. All I did talk. But they, they just that prejudice. Now, and did you know about the march when it was happening in real time? What do you remember from that? You what remember? I remember about that march was something uh, quite a character. Because I guess, I don't know, I hate to use that word. I guess you said I was scared because what happened? Baby, I wasn't going to stand. Someone's going to hit me all upside the head. You know, you know and at that time, I'm a young man. See, I was about to size of that man. I wasn't that big, but hey. Baby, <laughs> Definitely was, not that big. I was. <laughs> I, yeah. I didn't, I didn't go to get big. Husky got face back. Muscular is why I was. <laughs> but, I, uh, but I was hustling. I, I was built more like that fellow there. You know, now he, so, so did you march or did you just? No, you, I didn't. Okay, okay. But so when you heard, did you see it on the news? Oh yeah. What What did you see? Like, tell me what resonated with you when you saw it. But it's a shame. I ain't, I ain't ready to play with anybody. Just going on the and I'm totally coming up there with tear gas and bitches stick to me, beat you all upside the head. Did you know anyone? Oh, I know some people, not, not so much personally, I was a kid, like I told you, mm -hmm. our parents raised us, they kept us close, see, because, uh, hey, if they went to town, on town, we could go to town, and we couldn't go there, if we went, we rode with dad on Saturday, and then we're going through town every day, on we couldn't just go to town like y'all did. Well, tell me, you know, if you could pass down a lesson that your parents gave you, to our generation and so that we can pass that down, what would be the lesson you would want to pass down? The whole thing boils down to, and I don't want you to think of preaching, all this stuff boils down to following the Spirit of God. He is guiding us even in slavery. God had a purpose for us, okay? Now, and God sent his people through some stuff, okay? But now, when he sends you to the stuff, you are to be stronger. And when you come out, you are to let people all see some God in you. Hey, Umbertha, how are you? I'm good. What do you remember growing up? Well, when I remember growing up, I was about, was about 16 years old when they had the march and they had across the Bridge. And then some of the children went from the school to do the, to go in the mall, but we just wasn't able to go. Oh, so what did your dad say? My no? mom said your no. Mom said no. <laughs> <laughs> they said so no. they did ask because the way they made it seem as if you know the students kind of galvanized. They had a teacher teaching the students how to protest and whatnot. So were you also excluded from even the training of learning how to protest? Or? No, no. Okay. You know, they never taught us anything. Okay. Okay. No. So then, how did you even hear about it, and what did it mean to see it? 
school that our parents attended and this is in Perry County uh, Alabama this FY this is a new addition a relatively new addition but obviously you see it is still being occupied and there are ordered up windows here still but it is still occupied at this time they house probably about 500 students with 100% minority population. One of the things that's um, concerning to me is that I think it's something like 78 or 80 percent of the students who attend here, 100 percent of them are African-American, well 99.6 percent of them are African-American and approximately about 80 percent of them 
live below the poverty level such that they require free school, I mean free, uh, free lunch. And so as we start looking at the performances of some of these schools, these schools right now, uh, only 27% of the graduates will score um, at or above the proficiency level for math. And about that same amount, maybe 26% perform at or above the proficiency level for reading. These are the school systems that uh, are educating our, our students, our children, our future. And even today in 2023, these are the statistics that we're dealing with. But this is the school that you went to. Uh, no, this is Robert C. Hatch. Hatch. This one is Perry oh, County Training. Side. This is okay. a training school and they add they added to it. Okay. And across the street. That used to be the elementary school. And now they have kind of combined the two as uh, I guess first through middle school. So when you went here it was one hundred percent black students. Oh yes. And today is still not Actually, I think 6. it was 100%. It was 100% black teachers too. And today is still 99.6% black. 99.6% uh, black. Um, and I don't know about the faculty. It's still. I think there are a couple of black teachers. Why do you suppose that happens here? Still? Uh, it's just a, a staunch divided community. And like uh, she was saying at Lincoln, that's what we're taught. It's like we went to, if we went to a restaurant, we automatically went to the black family. It just wasn't a question, that's what we do. Now Daisy, one time, she went to, uh, she went into the restaurant, and in the front, was Lloyd. But she, she must have been, I'm sure she was possible. But she went into the white section. Intentionally? Yeah, she didn't really, I mean, she just never, because we never really felt a lot of the differences. Mm -hmm. It's like everybody called my dad, our parents, Mr. Warren. Nobody ever called him first name. He called them Miss Long and Miss whatever their name was. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of a mutual respect kind of thing. But, uh, so we never really felt the racism. I first felt racism when I went abroad. It's interesting that you say that because as, as I look back at my parents never mentioned anything about race in us growing up. Because we really didn't never experience really, like when was she it because the area was already segregated and you already knew and that, that you grew up pretty much around all black people and to get into a white school or into a white neighborhood was not anything that you aspired to That's do. That's just something you didn't do. <laughs> that was just the norm. That was natural. And she went into the restaurant. Nobody said anything to her. They tried, they treated her, nice, served her, but they went and found Dad and told him that she was in there, but it did not happen again. <laughs> because she was a child, she didn't know. So how do you rate the quality of the education that was uh, delivered here in this school system? Because I look at you and all of your siblings, and you all seem pretty, one, you're definitely educated and you carry yourselves with great dignity and you are quite accomplished in your respective careers. Uh, I know you retire now, but how do you, do you think that the education that you received in this school system significantly contributed to that success? Oh, definitely, definitely. That's what made us basically who, are, who we are. Our education, the education was great. 
the children were disciplined, the teachers were very well educated, and they evidently had a passion to transmit their education to us to make it a better world, a better country. No one's ever told us that we were, nobody ever said you're inferior, nobody, at least none of our family members did. And I'm not sure that I even heard from a white person growing up that you're inferior, but society in a lot of subliminal ways tell you yeah. uh, by representation that you're inferior. And so I had the same experience when I went to medical school and got into the MD-PhD program. I'm wondering like, man, am I going to be able to compete with all these people? Right. Am, I, am, I, am I competent and able to do it? And then. Same experience, I got to talking to some of these students and I'm like, these people are not bright wow. at all. Wow. <laughs> they're not. And there, it wasn't so much that they weren't unintelligent, but they weren't the geniuses and they certainly weren't, they weren't even superior. more, they weren't superior. At least they were, what do you call it, when it's equal. Well, equal. At best. I mean, but so, I think in a lot of ways they were a little bit less. A little bit less. A little bit and less. legacy, I think, is one of the reasons yeah. why why they seem to, to prosper more so than any other one. People get into, we, we have this whole conversation about uh, affirmative action being turned over by the Supreme Court and legacy still being able to persist in your getting into these uh, yeah. prestigious schools. It's yeah. not by merit, but it's because you were born into money. And those of us who weren't necessarily born into money, and I'm sure as you can assess, are somehow uh, endowed with a drive to, to make sure that right. we achieve in spite of, not because of. And money is really not the determiner of who you are. It's really not the determiner of like putting Joe to somebody who says, make that came into the world. So possessions and actually accomplishments doesn't really determine who you are. It's the heart, what's inside, what's why you're doing what you're doing. One of the things that is and I remember this so vividly, like it was yesterday. He said, look at that little girl over there. Look at Daisy, look at Angie, look at Grace. Aren't they pretty? Little white girl, blonde hair. Not necessarily blonde, but I said, oh yeah. Look at her shoes, they're so pretty. Uh, Pat leather shoes, her hair is so straight. Isn't she pretty? And he asked all these questions. And all the answers from you was yes. And um, he said, she's prettier than you finish it. Don't you ever let me hear you let that come out of your mouth again. Believe it or not, it's never come out of my mouth again. He says, nobody is prettier than you, nobody is better than you, and nobody is smarter than you. My I'm biggest sure. concern is that we'll become uh, a people much like the uh, people that oppress us where they weren't as right. astute, they weren't mm -hmm. as driven, motivated, determined, um, because they've had everything already handed to them, and they never really had to work for something. And privilege does have its, its benefits, and I can attest to that. Uh, we talk about white privilege, white this because that determined a whole lot or is more the internal person. person. Mm -hmm. I have experienced on a number of occasions basically light privilege, which is not white privilege, but it's between white privilege and not privilege. Because you like complexity, like you got hazel eyes, and I was redhead when I was little. I had red hair. And it was, it was kind of difficult because daddy called me red because 
whatever reason, so we read, and he thought it would be determined in here that I didn't have the heart to tell him. I hated it because the rest of the kids were teasing me with my hair on fire. Cat eyes, cat eyes, can you see in the dark? And he gave me special attention, actually, and now that I look back, I think he knew all the other kids were giving me a hard time. There's a book called When Helping Hurt. They give a person too much. They don't, they, didn't, they don't have any, they don't have any skin in the game. They just receive it. And over time, it becomes an entitlement. So those kind of things, like, you need to earn what you get. Um, I have the luxury of being able to talk to this person with my mother consistently about how um, experiences she were growing up as well as some of the unique experiences being here in Uniontown as well as in um, Perry County. And one of the things that we probably haven't talked too much about was what is the occupation aside from the sharecroppers um, that your dad did in addition to again um, raising, doing the tilling the land and the like. Okay. Um, in order to um, provide for 12, 13 children, um, my parents had to sort of divide up the chores and my father worked out of town in Birmingham, Alabama at a factory for years and my mom essentially stayed home and tended the farm and helped the children to uh, work the farm. So, and at some point when he was able to retire, we all came back together. He, he would come home on weekends, of course, but uh, uh, in order to make things work, accumulate things and ensure that we were sustainable, he had to uh, secure a job out of town during the weekdays and come home on weekends. And how did he start the bus driving? There again, when he came home, um, as, a, as another supplement, augment to the farm, he ended up uh, driving the bus and that allowed him to essentially um, work in the morning Get us, get us off to school. He earned some money, and then come back while we were in school and uh, do work around the farm. And, and just to clarify, it wasn't the bus as in um, typical public, but it was a school bus. It was a public school bus. Okay. Yeah. And then you know, I, I understand sometimes you have to have a substitute, or if he's unable to drive, like how did that work, and how did you end up helping? Well, that was there came a time when um, I guess for uh, dependency purposes. The school system required that each bus driver had a substitute in case of emergency illnesses and the like, and because school doesn't stop because the person gets sick. And uh, because that income was so essential to the family, I was the oldest child there at the time, and I was only 16 years old. And uh, I'm amazed that our parents had the confidence in me to actually um, help me get my CDL license, and I became my father's substitute driver. Uh, a 16-year-old and a regular long school bus, so I, I was it. And that was my contribution at that time, aside from helping the family, to help support the family on the farm. And so when driving the school bus, I guess you got to see, um, in terms of geography, the black school, the white school, and, and, and I take it some, were it some of the white students on the bus, or was it just for the black students? It was just for the black students, because at that time, the school systems were entirely segregated at the time that I started. And, uh, but during that period, uh, so when I, I, I would pick up students, I would only pick up the black students. And uh, we didn't necessarily have to pass the black students, the white school, if you will, or the majority school. But at uh, later on, 
the next year, we were able to um, integrate the schools. And during that integration process, we still maintain our two separate campuses, if you will, but on a voluntary basis, parents were uh, allowed, encouraged, if you will, in order to promote integration, to send their children to the majority school. And of course, my parents decided that we would be a part of that process, and I, of course, was a guinea pig that was chosen, not me and my brother, but he'll have to tell you about the fact that it didn't last very long for him. Um, but I was the guinea pig, if you will, to sort of initiate, jump off that process of integration for the school system in Uniontown. So the best that you can recall before going to the all-white school, did you have any initial impressions or did you have any you know, anxiety, anticipation? What were you feeling? Um, well, of course, we didn't really, even though we lived in a totally segregated society, we didn't really feel it. We knew it, but we didn't feel it in terms of anxiety. But subconsciously, it wasn't until we integrated the schools and I started attending school with the, the white students that I realized I subconsciously felt that they were better than we were. And what brought that to light for me was in the classroom. Um, I, of course, have always been very studious and very, you know, do the best you can in whatever you do. And uh, more importantly, later I realized it was important to me to make my parents proud. So one of the ways we would do that is to bring home good grades. So I was essentially an A student and I carried that uh, to the white school. And I was, as such, I became one of their top students in terms of academics. And I was sort of amazed that I, this humble black girl, was essentially excelling academically among the, the white students. Now in terms of treatment of the students, did they embrace you? Was it mixed? And do you recall how you experienced the students at the white school versus the black school? Um, honestly, uh, there was some anxiety about having to go, as you uh, suggested earlier. Uh, but I will say the majority of the white students, while they didn't embrace me, they did not bully me. However, there was a small few, a minority few, if you will, of the white population, mostly boys, who actually bullied. I mean, they would do things uh, and set in class. I would, of course, sit in front of the class. That's just the nature. It was just easier, closer to the teacher. Um, they would sit in the back of the class and throw what we call spitballs, just pieces of paper that they would put in their mouth and uh, make little small balls out of them. And they would just sort of throw them uh, at me just to aggravate me in the classroom. Now, but the, most of the students, while they didn't embrace me in that, asking me to join them in the social activities. They did not bully me either. So for the most part, it was just the precious view. And in terms of the teaching and I guess the resources in the education, did you notice a difference or did it seem similar, the same, was separate and equal actually applied or what did you see a, a, com a complete difference between the two? Well, actually at that point in time, I did not. Um, Maybe it's because of the age. I did not notice a, a, a very difference in the quality, if you will, of the education. Um, I think that black institutions, black educational institutions, has always done well in making sure that the, the, the children were educa educated based upon the materials that they had at the time. So the materials 
I would, would, would probably different, but in all honesty, I can't recall in my mind thinking, oh, this is a better book, this is a better this or the other. And as far as the teachers are concerned, even in the black schools, I think we had excellent teachers. And uh, in the white schools as well, uh, the teachers were normal. The, it, the, the one difference, however, was that black teachers embraced the children more. Um, it wasn't just a lecture and made you feel <clears throat> like family, it made you feel like you cared. But in this particular environment, um, I'm sure we were sort of imposed upon the teachers just like we were imposed upon the children. And so there was, while there wasn't in any um, outward negative vibes, you could tell there just wasn't an open embracing either. Now I understand sometimes parents, because my grandparents or your parents don't necessarily talk about the experiences of the racism, the prejudice, but I know you weren't there for a long time there at the all-white school. From the best that you can recall, why do you think you did not stay? Um, well, actually, I did not stay. We, I stayed there about a year, and the reason we ended up leaving, because uh, again, it was a voluntary thing for our parents to to allow us to send us to that school in order to integrate the system. Um, my father, as, you, as, I, as I mentioned, did drive the bus. And that bus, at that time, was part of the public school system. It was a government-operated uh, facility or entity, if you will. And uh, after we were enrolled in that school, they essentially withdrew his job. They basically fired him because uh, one of those subtle things that, you know, yeah, you can do this, but here are the consequences. And that, of course, was his livelihood, and he needed that income. Um, so the next year, he didn't drive the bus anymore, and we went back to the black school. Our parents and my sister, made, I'd be surprised if someone hasn't mentioned it already, they were real subtle in telling you or instilling in you values. They didn't talk racism. They didn't talk uh, hatred or dislike for white people. In fact, they worked together with them very well. Um, you know, they called each other misters and Mrs. But they knew and understood where the boundaries were. They, as best they could, did not try to transfer that segregation, that separatism in us, but we knew it was there, and they knew it was there. They wanted us to know that we were important and that we were valued. So one of this one uh, thing that my father would just sort of sneak up on us, and that is he would just kind of ask us, as you would see children, uh, it says, you know, who's the prettiest little girl in this room? Because a lot of, again, there were 12 of us, so we didn't always have the best uh, we didn't always go buy clothes for Easter and Christmas. Um, so he would just ask, who's the prettiest girl in this room? And you'd look around and of course it would be somebody with a pretty dress on, someone whose hair is all done up and looking really, really nice. And, um, and he would just say, uh, actually, no, don't ever say that. You are the prettiest girl in this room because you are God's creature. So know that you're most it's not how you look that makes you pretty. It is who you are inside. There's an adage that says the wheels of change move slowly. But what we're learning and perhaps have already learned from some of our relatives is that when there's resistance to change, particularly systemic resistance, those wheels don't move at all. 
and we see how it impacted us so much in the past and impacted so many of our ancestors in the past, but it's also happening even this very day. Yeah, I mean, as we can imagine, as we are seeing, we've got Ron DeSantis in Florida who is rolling back a lot of the um, African-American, as well as just history programs in the education system. We're going to see some states follow suit. And so once our parents are talking about how they didn't know a lot about our history, we did a lot of change. And we, there has been progress, but we're seeing it roll back. Yeah. And it's not just history, but it's all about education. He who controls education controls the future because this is what's being taught to our youth. So, Sonia, I had the privilege of being able to sit down with one of our other cousins who I just met. Uh, he was the uh, superintendent of one of the school districts in this area. We thought that we would be we had an incredible interview and, and I wish that we could have aired it live. But one of the concerns that he had was because the area is so intensely political. He's retired, but he didn't want to have something he said with his name and with his face on the screen to cause problems for some of his relatives who still worked in the school system. So um, I just will summarize some of the things that we talked about that I thought was very insightful and impactful about his experience. And, and for many years, for well over a decade, he was the superintendent of the schools. And I was asking him, in particular, I was concerned because uh, as we talked about Robert C. Hatch Elementary or a high school, and how segregated it is, I, it still baffles me that there's 99.6% Blacks in any school. And um, the reason is because the area itself is segregated. And so I asked him, how did that come to be? Because to me, it was pretty interesting. He said, well, basically, when you move, when all the white people move out, that's all that's left are Blacks. And so, <laughs> uh, but he, one thing that he brought up, he said, is that there were some unintended consequences of that. When you move out of an area and you relinquish that area because you've abandoned that area, you then allow that district to govern itself. And so you lose political power in that area. And it reminded me so much about the um, the 14th Amendment when people got the right to vote and how in these areas where the population was predominantly Black, you know, we started putting people in the House of Representatives and getting people in the Senate and they had to find some kind of way to remedy that because you didn't want to have black people. You didn't want black people to have the power. And so he said that one of the unintended consequences of the segregation that was experienced around that time was that black people started to get the political power and they couldn't let that happen. And there were two ways that they were trying to uh, prevent that from happening. And one way was through education. And we were talking about how the school before were, were training schools and um, and then it became a normal school because it wasn't just a training school. It was one where we expected you to become educated. One of the things he said to me before was that he's like, they don't want you to become educated because once you become educated, you can no longer think for me. And uh, But they're happy about training you to do a trade all day long. But once you become educated, then you become a free thinker and then you start gaining too much power. And then when you have that political power, as he was saying, they try to reclaim it. So if education is not the way to do it, they reclaim it through economic power. And uh, that was intriguing to me because I started thinking like as a superintendent of school, you got a lot of power. But the reality of it is, is that any school district is dependent 
on the locale and maybe the county and maybe the state and they receive funds also from uh from the state and so if you really want to be able to control a school district you control how much funding it has in it you control also you know whether or not they become private partners in the area where big corporations now start spending money into the schools and and not necessarily just funding the schools that are the public schools for which you're the superintendent, but they may be having some other schools brought in, charter schools and and whatever those things may be. So he went and really started telling, enlightening me more or less about all of the inner workings of those things. And uh, he was fortunate to have a financial advisor as a wife. And, and she actually ran the... Um, controlled the monies for the school system for, for a period of time. And uh, he said, I was probably the smartest, uh, the most financially savvy superintendent of all school districts in Alabama, because <laughs> I had, I had a wife who every night was telling me, you know, <laughs> this is where you need to spend your money. I said, that's interesting. He said, but one thing she always told me, she said, every decision that you make is a financial decision. And that struck me because I don't think it's not, I don't think it just applies to just um, your job and just being a superintendent of a school or, or any type of leader in any position. When you think about it, every decision that we make in life sometimes is a financial decision. And when we start thinking about the things that we do and how we spend our time, how we spend our energy and we look at it as having some financial consequences or financial benefits, then it changes some of our perspective. I'm not saying make money or God or anything like that, but, uh, or love money inordinately or anything, but <laughs> you know how you do. <laughs> well, I mean, even as Christians, like you said, even as Christians, we have a financial responsibility of, of tithing. And so the choice to be a Christian also does to some degree guide how you spend money. Um, and I did want people to understand, just to put in some context, my father was from New Bern, which is also very close to Perry County. They just elected their first Black mayor, and he is having difficulties getting or accepting or, or even executing the administrative of his office because the councilmen, who is primarily white, are hindering him from being able to execute his duties. And so there are still a lot of political strife among the races there. And so I do understand why he chose not to have his face and his name shown, but I appreciate so much that he still gave you his story. Absolutely. One of the other pearls that he said, he said, they don't mind you gaining power. He said, but when you get too big or you get too close, it becomes a problem. When you get, you get too big, when you feel like you, we can't still tell you what to do or you start telling us what to do. And he said, you get too close when some of the decisions that you make start impacting us. And when that happens, then they have to start exerting those mechanisms of control. And usually uh, are the purse strings that that allow that type of control to occur. He was saying also that, you know, you all, and I thought this was really insightful. He said, they don't mind if an individual excels uh, they can let you as an individual but as, aspire to some of the highest heights as long as you don't get too big or too close. As I was going to say, but still, like I said, that's why I wanted to emphasize that mayor position. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, they are stopping him. And it's Patrick Braxton. If you're interested in doing some research on that, I'm just talking to my viewers. Please, you know, lend some support to that. 
But I mean, as we talked about, for the most part, a lot of these neighboring cities or the Perry County in general is predominantly black, but yet their leadership is white. And like, and as he's pointing out, and as you're reiterating, hey, we don't mind if you keep your land or do you know do excel in your own you know area and land, but when you come into our territory, then you start being in these political positions and, and having the power to make laws and having the power to execute laws and having the power to overturn racial laws, that's when it becomes too much. Yeah, yeah. So you either get too big or you get too close as an individual, it becomes a problem. And then he was saying that the biggest threat is that not you as an individual getting rising and aspiring and ascending to power, but when you empower an entire group of people when you start having a whole group of people now ascend to some level of influence and some level of power, then it's all hell breaks loose. And that's, I think, what we're seeing right now in this political in this political arena is that you start seeing a lot of people are a lot of white people and are, are, are really saying, hey, wait a minute, we're starting to lose some of our political influence and we have to find some kind of way to keep that. Uh, because we see that soon we'll be the minority in this in this country, you know, relative to people of color. And so they they, they try desperately then to to hold on to it. And I don't know how successful they will be. But we well, can... and again, you know, I, and I hate to just quickly before we get in that Alabama brawl. <laughs> and just so people know that is yeah. Montgomery is not New Bern or uh, Perry County or Uniontown. But nonetheless, Montgomery is close to Selma. Perry County is is pretty much neck and neck with Selma. And so, like like you said, it, it's the uprising is there. Sometimes it's just that fear of, okay, now the nation is seeing it. And now, again, there was a lot of people celebrating it. And so we're, we're going to see some changes going on in Alabama altogether. But but as you're, again, articulating, not everyone is willing to accept um, the change. And because they still have a lot of wealth influence, a lot of land influence, they still can make it very difficult for Black people who are trying to go back to the communities, trying to build it up, trying to improve it, um, to do that in, in the manner that they're trying to do it. Yeah, he said there are two things we need in order to be able to do that. He said, you need God and you need some in God we trust. <laughs> I, said, I said you got that right you need god and you need some in god we trust because if you don't have that in god we trust that money that almighty dollar you're not going to be able to do a whole bunch of anything so i walked away from that meeting with him uh remembering two things you need god and you need in god we trust but also every decision that you make is a financial decision and to me that was that was phenomenal. Well, I'm glad he schooled you. <laughs> <laughs> and I listened to him. <laughs> Mark, wow. Are you as inspired as I am through this whole experience? I am inspired. I'm also shocked to some extent. But you know how you can be shocked but not surprised? Yes. And, yes. and it, I was really enthused to hear the rich history that we have in our family. And I'm saddened because... It's not just the history of our family, but it's the history of our people mm -hmm. and how so many times and so many politicians are now trying to erase that history. The one thing that I think I can conclude from this weekend is that I think that the teaching of black history exposes a white fallacy. And I think that becomes their primary objective is to avoid the exposure of 
not just their fallacy, but some of the heinous things that have been performed in the past. And not for the purpose of condemnation of, of, of white people, of course, because most of the people that are alive today are as abhorred by that as well. But it destroys their narratives that we as a black people are savages. <laughs> when you start looking at some of the uh, sebaceous, sebaceous word, <laughs> but the savage-like things that, they, that right. they've done that not were just in, individually, but systemically in order to really impact and oppress the people. You know, on that vein, because we hear Congress talk about um, banning lynchings, and yet that's for some reason still hasn't been passed. But when you think about lynchings, you really do think about people that are unknown. But here, we really got to talk about people that knew each other or knew the people that were actually severely beaten and talk about the effects that that has on their families as well as the community. I know for me, I know we know a lot about our family history and we learned some more here, but we learned a lot about the community history at Perry County mm. and even its um, staple in the national frame. Which I think and is the inspiring. things that they don't want, exactly. didn't want us to know, exactly. but this is what's going to happen. When you shine yes. light on, on darkness, it's exposed. And and part of that exposure helps us to, to eventually to grow, not just as a people of color, but I think as a nation, as exactly. a whole. And so I'm glad that we had this this weekend. It was sort of impromptu how we decided <laughs> that we would do this, but I'm so grateful that uh, God inspired us to be able to do this and provided the opportunity for us to do it as well. Yes, when you have so much knowledge, you gotta pass it on. So I hope you guys have enjoyed this as much as we have enjoyed giving it to you. Please continue to comment, please continue to like, and please continue to support us as we really enjoy giving this content to you guys. So thank you so much. Don't forget to catch us on our YouTube page and you can catch us every Saturday morning, 10 a.m. Central Standard Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Facebook Live. You can also catch us on Star Radio or your favorite podcast. Thanks again for tuning in to the Roundtable Consult. Until next week, be blessed. <laughs>